Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got the business stories behind Stocks and a Move. I'm Corey Johnson. Today, August 10, means it's episode 71. Well, just ahead, AMC's sneaky math about the box office. Listen to the CEO talk about AMC's ability to even survive. Plus some interesting revelations about how poorly people are driving post-pandemic from an interesting car insurer. And our guest, Hennessy Focus Fund's Brian McCauley, talks about groundbreaking business models from companies like Allegiant Airlines. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, and you can make sure that you listen to it if you click that subscribe button and follow us so you can catch every single show. It's worth it. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We're going to explain the business stories behind stocks in the move by drilling down on a handful of them. But joining me, our editor extraordinaire, Ben Wilson. We're going to take a look at the three most important business stories of the day. Ben, uh, I've told you what the three are going to be. Let's what, what start with number one is. Corey, I am really excited to hear your take on the infrastructure bill. What's going on there? Yeah, so uh, the bill passed uh, the Senate. It's going to go through the House or some version of it will go through the House. Very uh, central to um, President Biden's economic agenda. And also, interestingly, you know, a bipart- a big bipartisan bill, the likes of which we haven't seen in a very long time. It will ultimately, if it looks like this, will be one of the most substantial federal investments in roads and bridges and railways um, after weeks and even months of negotiations by a bipartisan, bipartisan group of 10 senators and the White House. Um, in a, among other things, $550 billion into water projects, the electrical grid, um, but there's still a, a, a fight to go through the House. Now, Corey, it is always nice to see some bipartisan work, but uh, what happened to the crypto amendment that we talked about yesterday? Yeah, as we were recording the show yesterday afternoon, uh, there was an amendment that was coming up that was going to solve a problem in the infrastructure bill. So the infrastructure bill had introduced this really vague language about taxing crypto transactions. It looked like it was focused on brokerage transactions, but it was so poorly worded that it could have affected any exchange of crypto, any movement of crypto, any transfer of files. Imagine, for example, if they just decided to tax email and they accidentally, you know, they, and they created some vague language. That's kind of how bad this language was. Uh, after the crypto community was up in arms about it for a little while, uh, a handful of senators, Mark Warner, Kristen Sinema of Arizona, Rob Port, Mark Warner of Virginia, of course, uh, Rob Portman of Ohio, and Cynthia Loomis of Wyoming, whom you heard on the show yesterday, uh, came up with an amendment to fix the problem. The problem was one senator, Richard Shelby, Republican out of Alabama, 80-something years old, he wanted to throw in $50 billion of additional spending on the military, having nothing to do with infrastructure, to put in the infrastructure bill. And he insisted that if he didn't get his $50 billion, the crypto amendment to fix this problem was out. So the amendment was introduced. It was blocked. Shelby attached his amendment to boost military spending to the crypto amendment. Bernie Sanders blocked that. Then Senator Tom Carpenter reintroduced the amendment. It was blocked again by Shelby. 
Carpenter of Delaware took to the floor of the Senate and said, because of a difference of opinion on whether or not the senator from Alabama should get a vote in his amendment, because that's not agreed to, the bodies refusing to take up the crypto amendment that's broad bipartisan support that fixes something that badly needed to be fixed, didn't get fixed. The bills attached uh, got this attachment of this really um, poor, poor definition, in my opinion, of what a crypto broker is. And if the House doesn't fix this, crypto entrepreneurs, I think, are just going to head for the hills, specifically the hills of Switzerland and Zug or the flats of Singapore. And they're going to want nothing to do with starting these businesses in the U.S. And the way the, the U.S. dominates the Internet might not happen with crypto. So as written, uh, the bill still has the general language that we talked about yesterday being problematic. And what didn't go through was the amendment. Yeah, I mean, software developers, transaction validators, um, they will all be defined as brokers under this uh, bill. And it, it's, a, it's a great disincentive to build a business um, in the U.S. And nothing's ever been more uh, geographically mobile than crypto. Well, let's see what happens in the House. Corey, tell me about news and don't worry, number two, uh, China and the technology sector. Yeah, so, um, you know, we've seen this crackdown in China of technology companies, specifically education companies, but also all companies that are using these, these VIEs, variable interest uh, entity, entities offshore and allowing U.S. investors to get involved there. Well, now SoftBank is saying they're going to hold back on any new investments in China because they don't know how Beijing's tech crackdown is going to play out. So SoftBank's uh, infamous $100 billion vision fund um, they have been a big backer of Chinese startups. No more. So is this uh, regulatory crackdown related to what China is doing in the education sector? I know we talked about that a few weeks ago on uh, the episode where you talked about some of the worst moving stocks of the last year. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to call it, yeah, the, the Chinese, the U.S. publicly traded education stocks lost about $100 billion in value in just a month's time or so. Um, I think that they are, we're going to call this a Venn diagram of overlapping concerns of the Chinese government. The Chinese government concerned about the cost of education in that country and trying to take away the outside things that some families feel like they need to pay for, like tutoring and so on. And that's what a lot of these companies were doing, or at least claimed to be doing. There were some questions about what they're actually doing. At the same time, they're concerned about U.S. influence in Chinese companies and U.S. ownership of Chinese companies and making it harder for U.S. investors or outside investors to own Chinese companies. So the combination of the two, really bad for those education companies, but apparently going to be bad for all kinds of companies, including startups that might have been backed by SoftBank. Now, Corey, tell us about our third most important business news story of the day. What's going on with Saks Fifth Avenue? Well, we love ourselves some communal workspaces like we work here at the Business Podcast Network, but... Uh, Hudson Bay, the owner of so many shopping malls, struggling shopping malls, has come up with a way to try to profit from the rise of remote work. There is a thesis that the WeWorks of the world, the, the, the temporary or occasional work sites will see a boom in business as people go to remote work, work from home, but occasionally need an office setting. So Hudson Bay, the owner of Saks Fifth Avenue, is converting parts of their department stores into co-working spaces for WeWork. They've got a new venture called Saks Works. And that could be, if Isaac were here, I would mispronounce it and he'd get really mad. But I won't do that to you, Ben. Well, thank you, Corey. I appreciate it. Saks works. And yes, it does. Saks works. 
calls for WeWork to run and staff some co-working spaces in buildings that are owned by Hudson Bay, former Saks Fifth Avenues, of which there are a handful, and as well as a, a number of other uh, uh, one-time department stores. I think those could be really cool spaces to work in with the big high ceilings and uh, a guy playing a piano in the corner, maybe? Escalator? I think so, too. Corey, I'm know. surprised that this is one of our first news stories on this. You'd think with all the employees communicating that they don't want to go back to the office, a lot of businesses would be converting some of their office space into other sources of income. Well, the first five co-working spaces from Hudson, uh, from Saks Works, Hudson-based Saks Works, WeWork Saks Works, will open next month in the New York City area. And I'm hoping they have people that spray perfume at you when you don't want it when you walk through the place. <laughs> Maybe offer some moisturizer. It'd be a great way to start the day of work. <laughs> a lot of potential there. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down in today? I would like to start with Kansas City Southern. Kansas City Southern trades with the ticker KSU. Shares are up 8% today. For the last 12 months, shares are up 57%. What's the story with Kansas City Southern? Well, Kansas City Southern Railroad uh, got some good news. Two pieces of good news. for One piece for the shareholders, maybe for the company as well. But uh, there's a big bid afoot to buy this company, this independent railroad company, uh, by two Canadian-controlled uh, companies, Canadian National and Canadian Pacific. So don't you confuse the two. But So uh, federal railroad regulators, U.S. regulators, said they plan to issue a key ruling at the end of the month that could clear the way for Canadian National Railway to buy Kansas City Southern for about 320 bucks a share. Now, Canadian Pacific Railway it thereby increased their offer to acquire, acquire Kansas City Southern for about $300 a share. So we'll see which deal gets approved by the U.S. government. Um, but Kansas City Pacific had said earlier they were going to buy it for $25 billion, then they raised their offer to $27 billion. Now the offer on the table from Canadian Nationals for $30 billion. We'll see if a higher offer comes uh, through uh, and, and is allowed to be taken to the federal uh, railway officials looking at that. Um, one of the reasons that Kansas City Southern is really attractive right now is because they've been very successful at implementing a new thing called a PSR, or Precision Scheduling Railroading, to lower their costs. PSR, Precision Scheduled Railroading, is this really dramatic thing that Canadian National actually pioneered many years ago that changes the way railroads operate in a rail yard. It calls for longer trains, which means fewer trains, which means fewer locomotives and power used, shorter stops when they do drop off and pick off stuff, pick up stuff, which means lower headcounts and big savings for the railroads and specifically fewer locomotives. Now, Kansas City Southern had, had resisted this precision scheduled railroading, PSR, for many years. Until 2019, they finally started to adapt this program. And then 2020 happens, right? Volumes fall uh, uh, through the floor and they're instigating this new uh, uh, cost-cutting measures. So what... Uh, Kansas City Southern looks like as it comes out of uh, the recession, which is only two months long, but comes out of COVID with a whole new uh, um, uh, operating methodology is really interesting. They have a guy who's an uh, executive vice president of the company whose entire focus is precision scheduled railroading. He spoke on their most recent conference call. His name is Sam uh, Fami, and he talked about kind of the gains that they've made in, in reducing headcounts, extending train links, 
uh, reducing train starts um, and getting rid of the number of locomotives in their networks uh, and how far they are already in this process, which makes us a more attractive takeover for either of the Canadian railways. Here he is. We don't want to lose all the gains that we made. So we did conserve a lot of the gains because the headcounts are not going up at the same level as the volume increases. And the train lengths did not go down very much. It went down by about 2%, which means that, you know, the train starts and all the rest. We have conserved a lot of what we did last year. So the, the game really is how can you absorb the volumes? How can you improve the service, which, which was the thrust of phase one of 2019? And we have done a lot of work in that area. We, we really, you know, push the envelope on the local uh, the local service and the industry jobs and the spotting and pulling percentages, which went up from like 70% to 87%. So, you know, the game is how can you improve the service, absorb the volumes, and still maintain some of the efficiency gains that we have done. You know, we, we are talking about locomotives. Actually, 69 locomotives are going to leave our network in the next three weeks. Leave the network, not go in storage. They are leaving the network because a lot of the locomotives are actually demo locomotives that we're working on with a vendor. So, you know, the, the efficiency is still there, but at the same time, you know, the service is primordial. And this is, this is really the balancing act that we are trying to do. And this is a challenge to the supply chain to your, to your question. So I just think that's so fascinating that after 150 years of railroads, they're still figuring out how to do it. How, how long yeah, it's surprising be, that they had often. so much room to make changes in efficiency at this point in the history of railroading. Yeah, 100 percent. And the guy really who invented this stuff had been the CEO of Canadian National, who, um, uh, you know, they, they announced he was going to go on a medical leave. And two days later, he was dead, um, which is a whole other drama that, that sort of started this five years ago or so. But um, really interesting management change and and and. and uh, structural change in the railroad industry that is really changing everything for the locomotive companies, the companies that make the air brakes for the locomotives, which we'll talk about in a later show. And yes, this big acquisition of Kansas City. All right, Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at AMC. AMC, this will be a fun one. AMC Entertainment shares were down 6% today, and for the last 12 months, shares are up 610%. What's new with AMC? Well, the company reported earnings yesterday, and, and it's been covered a little bit, but I, th I think some interesting stuff, really important stuff, was completely missed by, I hate to use the phrase, the mainstream media, but when I read the coverage in some of the biggest uh, news publications or watched some of it on on the the, the cable channels, you know, they kind of missed some important context into the comments from CEO Adam Aaron. Now, the movie theater company, of course, they've got movie theater chains. That wasn't a good business to be in for the, the pandemic. Um, they did a 455, $445 million in revenue in the second quarter. It's way up from the previous year, about three or four times the previous year. Um, and indeed, I'm sorry, it's way up from what they did the first quarter, let alone what they did a year ago. So again, 445 million compared to 19 million last year. I don't think that that's important what it compares to last year. I think it matters whether or not they can get back to what things were like before the pandemic. And if they're ever going to get back to that, AMC's free cash flow is negative $252 million. So these guys are burning cash, even as they take so much in as people start to go back to the theaters a little bit. Now, the company said, and this was the headline, 
AMC's cash flows should turn positive in the fourth quarter this year. That's what the CEO said. <laughs> well, that's good, right? Well, the, the caveat is what was missed. AMC said they can get to theater-level cash flow break-even or positive if U.S. box office gets to about $5 billion or $5.2 billion. Now, year-to-date, we're only at $1.7 billion. Now, if you go back to 2019, at this point in the year, we would have been at $7 billion in box office when the year finished at a little bit above $11 billion. So in order for the industry box office to hit the number that CEO Adam Aaron needs, you would need it to be down just 16% compared to what it was like in, in 2019. So imagine the movie theaters you go to with just a couple of rows empty, two or three rows empty compared to what you saw in 2019. That is what they're saying it would take to get to break even without saying that's what it's going to take to get to break even. And that was the question sort of hinted at uh, I mean, let's ask AMC's CEO, Adam Aaron, can the industry box office really get back to 2019 levels, not just end of this year, ever? Nobody's crystal ball is good enough to know. Um, so, uh, but obviously it's, it's a very important question because we will be more profitable the higher the box office is. Uh, so we're we're uh, we know that with the cash that we've raised, we could survive in an eight billion dollar box office for a year or two, maybe. Uh, uh, but we'd sure be much more healthily profitable if the industry box office rises back up to nine billion, ten billion, even eleven billion or more uh, in 2023 and 2024. Uh, 2022, probably still going to be a transitional year between the, you know, the very low five-ish billion dollar numbers that we're thinking will occur in 2021 and where it's eventually going to settle in 2023 or 2024. So, you know, he, what he's saying there is, you know, can we survive if it's less than five billion? I don't know. Um, and I don't know. I certainly wish him a lot of luck. Going to the movies is a lot of fun. Um, lots of technologies, as he pointed out at the conference call, have threatened the movie business and the theater business for a long time, whether it was DVDs or VCRs or, I mean, television itself. And the business keeps getting bigger. But um, I don't know. I went, to the, I went to see Black Widow in the movie theater last Sunday, and I would have been out for a few weeks. The theater was empty. There were about eight people in a Sunday afternoon showing. Well, did the CEO address at all um, premiering movies on online streaming platforms? Because that seems like a major change that would affect year-end box office numbers. 100%. They're saying that next year there will be a lot less of that. Um, but, you know, next year might be too late for these guys. We'll see uh, how the year ends. But again, his prediction of cash flow positivity was predicated on the remainder of this year only being 16% below 2019 and that seems aggressive to me. Sounds like a number that slipped by a lot of news outlets, but it did, you didn't let it slip by, Corey. Oh, come on. That's what I'm here for. All right. What is your next drill down? Let's look at the Metro Mile company based here in San Francisco, California. Metro Mile trades with the ticker M-I-L-E. Shares were down 23% today, and since its December 2020 IPO, 
shares have been essentially cut in half. What's the story with Metro Mile? So Metro Mile is an insurance company that has pay per mile car insurance uh, in mostly in the U.S. and internationally. Um, they use they claim to use artificial intelligence. Yes, another one to um, automate claims, reduce losses associated with fraud, um, and help their employees, I don't know, do better. Um, in addition, they've got a thing called the Pulse, which uh, tr- plugs into the diagnostic port of a car and transmits data over wireless cellular networks. But uh, they announced earnings today, and they just weren't very good. Uh, more importantly, they said they, quote, encountered several unexpected challenges. Now, you'd think that offering pay less if you drive less would be really popular when people drive less. But that was not the case in the most recent quarter. And even worse, their losses were worse because crashes were worse and more expensive. Really interesting. So again, people are driving more now. Now that driving is back. But people are crashing just as much as they were when there was no one on the roads and they were driving like maniacs. And it's really affecting the losses of Metro Mile because of these serious accidents that are very expensive for the insurer, increased losses again because the driving is just really bad out there and really dangerous out there. Here's CEO Dan Preston. We saw when the pandemic first happened is, of course, the reduction in frequency happened right away. And obviously, premium followed that for us. Um, but severity went up with the leading sort of thesis behind that being that there are fewer people on the road, people are going faster, so the accidents that do happen are likely to be more severe. And you see this also in pedestrian hits and other things that can lead to higher severity. The thing that's, that, that was surprising as we started to um, enter into more of a post-pandemic period is that that severity never went back down as, as we would expect it to. So the frequency on a per mile basis stayed largely consistent over time, but severity stayed elevated, which is leading to the higher loss ratio. Um, from what we've seen from other reports out there, I think you've seen some of the uh, earnings from other insurers, is that this is an industry-wide trend. Um, so we expect we'll need to make rate adjustments as others will as well. So the rates are too low, the crashes are too frequent, and their competitive edge just isn't showing up right now. I think that's why the stock got crushed both today, because there's a new understanding about how their business works based on the quarterly results when we could really see what was happening there. And hey, be careful out there when you're driving. <laughs> I'd I mean, imagine really, December like, 2020 during the pandemic would be a bad time to IPO for an insurance company. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that you would think that that offering would be very attractive when people are looking at, hey, why am I paying so much in car insurance if I'm not going anywhere? But um, uh, it hasn't worked out so well for these guys. And it, it is it is disturbing that we're seeing people drive so dangerously post-pandemic. Uh, when the roads are more crowded, uh, you would would have thought that would have gone away. All right, well, let's take a look at a, a safer business, the airline business. Safe for f- passengers, perhaps, not usually for investors, but our guest, Hennessy Focus Fund's Brian McCauley, brings us a story of Allegiant Airlines and tells us why this company is doing so much better than all of the other airlines when the drill down continues. But first... The Drill Down is brought to you by Indeed. Now, here's an existential question for every business. When you're hiring, how do you know who's really best for the role? Well, save time and screen for quality candidates with the skills you need with Indeed assessments. When hiring gets hard, you need Indeed, the job site that makes hiring incredibly simple. Just attract, interview, and hire. With Indeed, you can do all that hiring in one place, even interviewing. 
So don't just hope your perfect candidate will find you. Indeed's hiring tools help you cut through the noise and hire faster and smarter. In fact, Indeed's Instant Match provides a list of quality candidates whose resumes are on Indeed the moment you post a sponsored job. With Indeed assessments, choose from 135 skill tests to make sure you're finding applications from people with the skills you need. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. So join the three million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash drilldown. That's right, for drilldown listeners, a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash drilldown. That's Indeed.com slash drilldown. Offer valid through September 30th. Terms and conditions apply. And remember to join the Drill Down on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod. And check out our website, bizpod.net. Let us know what stocks you think we should be drilling down on. All right, welcome back to the Drill Down. We're joined right now by Brian McCauley of Hennessy Funds, who brings to us the business of Allegiant, that regional airline that uh, some of us know so well, some of us don't. Um, but uh, Brian, appreciate your time and joining us. What is it that you find interesting about the business of Allegiant Airlines? Well, Corey, uh, you know, airlines in general, we find to be pretty terrible businesses. You know, if you look over the- I wasn't going to be long, rude, but I'm like, dude, really airlines? <laughs> what are you thinking? If you look over the long history of the airline industry, uh, it's essentially destroyed capital for investors. And the reasons for that are many, but, you know, for, for just to cite a few, you know, it's very capital intensive. Customers are very price sensitive and they'll trade to a different airline you know, to save a few bucks. Um, and it's a cyclical industry with, uh, you know, booms and busts uh, that uh, generally correlate with the broader economy. And so if you look at all the major airlines, uh, except for Southwest, they've all gone through bankruptcy over the last 10 and 20 years. Right. And so really not a great starting place to go looking for an interesting investment. But uh, when the pandemic hit last year, you know, we kind of sifted and sorted through the rubbish and came across Allegiant Travel Company. And Allegiant is a different type of airline. It's very niche and specialized, but what they've done is they are an ultra low cost carrier. So yeah. they buy and use uh, older airplanes. They um, make you book directly through their website. They do not provide free baggage and snack service in flight. And so they have cut out every cost that they can in order to provide great low fares to flyers. And on average, they're able to provide fares that are about half the cost of the larger airlines. There does and seem so to be a, 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 a notion of bifurcation. You know, we listened to the United Airlines call recently, and the CEO there has got a, a, a he says, you know, essentially we're going up market and we're going to buy a bunch of new planes and we're going to, we're going to change the consumer experience. We want a high end experience. We want a better, better seat. We, we, we think, and we're going to get rid of kind of a lot of the regional routes, uh, so routes, 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 so we can, uh, so we can get closer to the customers we want, the customers who will pay more, which is an interesting, you know, it was a race to the bottom in the airline business, and it doesn't seem to be as much anymore. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. I, I would say it is a bit of a bifurcated market. On one hand, you've got, you know, the business traveler who's way less price sensitive and books last minute. And the business traveler may make up, you know, 30% of the passengers on a traditional air carrier. 
um, but they'll make up 50, 70 percent of the revenue and profits. And so for many of these large airlines, it makes sense to focus on that premium customer. But for, you know, the average Joe that's trying to go on vacation and save a few bucks, you know, a solution like Allegiant is a, a terrific way to travel from point A to point B. Uh, it, it's it's interesting too. Now, where where are these guys based? Where is their is their bread uh, buttered, if you will? So they're headquartered in Las Vegas, but they have about five hundred different routes that they fly all over the country. What's interesting about their model is they are flying from secondary and tertiary cities to leisure destinations. So, for example, they will fly from Peoria, Illinois, to you know, around Orlando, Florida, and it's a direct flight. Those customers in Peoria, historically, before Allegiant showed up, would have to fly on a major carrier and they'd have to connect through a different airport in order to get down to oh, Central I'm, I'm Florida. Sure that was, I'm sure that was Peoria to O'Hare to, to, to Denver to, to Orlando. Yeah, and eight hours later, you show up at, 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 at Orlando, right? And so uh, this is a great solution because not only is it about half the cost, but it's also a direct flight. And so a really great value proposition. What's good about the business is what I've articulated, but also these markets are so small that they can't accommodate another competitor that has the same model as Allegiant. And so if Allegiant can be the first mover in that market, gain mind share, you know, establish well, a customer base. Forget the done. mind share, it's the gates, right? If they can get the gates at the smaller airports, there isn't room for somebody else to come in. Well, that's an element of it, but you know, a lot of these small airports, um, you know, got some excess capacity. But you know, it's it's it, it, it's a it's a one airline town, so to speak. And you know, if a second direct ultra low cost carrier like this shows up, neither of them will make money, and so nobody shows up. The Legion's there first, for the most part. They have a mini monopoly on that market on a go forward basis. When you look at uh, COVID, what happened to these guys during the pandemic? Obviously, revenue, you know got crushed, but um, were there permanent changes for them? You know, the, the business traveler and the the, the uh, leisure traveler went away. Leisure travels back, business travel isn't. But what happened to these guys during COVID? Well, like all the other airlines, they had a very difficult 2020, but uh, their model has relatively variable costs. And so they were able to cut costs pretty aggressively. Uh, and so they lost money like everybody else, but it was way less than everybody else lost. They also had the best balance sheet pound for pound in the industry. And so they didn't need to take dilutive capital from the government like almost everybody else did. And so they were able to preserve the equity value for their investors. They, they, um, you know, they were able to trudge through. And now because they've got that great balance sheet, they're out there buying, uh, you know, fire sale used airplanes and airplane parts at 50 or 70 cents on the dollar um, and they're growing once again and you know just reported their second quarter in 2021 they're they're profitable once again and so they were kind of the least hard hit of all the airlines and they've used the distress to their advantage to acquire and grow into new locations now gross profit margins for these guys have been on decline and have continued to decline and I wonder, you know, is that is that purely a COVID phenomenon? Obviously, that was a disaster for everybody last year. But um, is this something we we should expect since this is, they are kind of racing to be in a business that uh, is is so uh, tight on costs? 
or tied up revenue, I should say? So, you know, there's been a lot of moving parts, puts and takes in the gross margins, the operating margins for the business over the last five years or so. Um, partially, they were uh, replacing their aged airline fleet with um, newer used vehicles over that time horizon, newer used aircraft. And so there's bound to be noise around that. And then you get hit with COVID and that throws everything in the financials for a loop. But, you know, the way that we generally think about it is this business is probably going to earn about 20% operating margins right. uh, once things return to normal. And then you contrast that with a typical airline, they'll have about 10% operating margins. Oh, if that. Right. If, if that, that. If, they, if they're hitting on all cylinders. Yeah. I also wonder what the effect of the return of business travel is here. I mean, the return of business travel might ultimately lower the prices for their competitors, right? Because, uh, as you point out, if the if the if the big airlines need um, business travelers to make profits, they can start to charge less to everybody else. I, I you know, the the fares this summer, um, with the lack of business travel, have been through the roof for the people who have been traveling. So it's interesting. About ninety percent of the flights that existed in twenty nineteen have come back and are in service, and it's already know, overall, that high. It's really that high. Uh, domestically, domestically, uh, for domestic flights. And about 80% of the travelers have returned. But of course, uh, that's about 100% of the leisure travelers and about 50% of the business travelers. And so what we've seen in the industry is that because the leisure travelers have come back, most of the other airlines have begun to focus more aggressively on leisure. And so they've repositioned some of their airlines or aircraft and and, and routes. And so there's been some incremental competition for Allegiant at the margin, but there's so much demand right now, it's not impacted pricing or the ability for Allegiant to fill up their airplanes. In fact, Allegiant only has direct competition on about 25% of the routes that they fly. And so they're pretty well insulated. How do they pick the, the routes? It's a very, you know, microeconomic local decision. You know, you look at a market like Peoria, like we discussed earlier, and you know, look and see what type of services offered to that existing market. You know, are there any low cost or ultra low cost carriers there yet? Um, if not, well, then that's a promising opportunity. And, you know, how difficult is it to get to these leisure destinations from Peoria? If you've got to go through O'Hare and then through Charlotte and then you finally arrive in Orlando, well, that's a really interesting, uh, competitive, um, opportunity for, for Legion. Yeah. Even for the, uh, the budget family traveler, you want to get those Mickey mouse ears on the kid as quickly as possible. You don't want eight hours in the airport before you get there. That's correct. Yeah. Nobody loves being in in airplanes or, or in airports. And, you know, if you could extend, extend that vacation time by a couple of hours, it's a, it's a real nice, real nice boost. I don't know if anybody loves being in Disney world, but that's just me. (laughs) I don't know. Um, uh, so when you look at their their sort of industry superior, uh, call it EBIT margins, um, do you do you think that those still have room to grow? I mean, they as as you point out, they are doing better than they have done in the last five years. Is that something you think can continue to ramp? You know, in theory, they could probably extract uh, higher margins out of their existing network, but uh, they're more focused on growing. The number of routes they have and so as you add new routes into the system they come online at a lower margin which dilutes the overall company margin and so while you may have some rising margins in established markets it's going to be diluted by 
by that growth, it'll probably net to about the same place, about 20%. EV so they kind of target that. And uh, well, it's, 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 it's an interesting, it's a different take on the airline business. Um, uh, and, and uh, you mentioned the cyclicality. Is this something you look at as, as this will work for a while and then it's going to stop working? What would make this stop working and be more cyclical? So, you know, we try to take a very long-term approach when we invest and when we analyze businesses. And so our mindset in Allegiant and our analysis is really, do we want to own this business for the next 10 years? You know, because it's just too hard to pick where the top and the bottom of the cycle are going to be. Yeah. And so Allegiant, given the growth they have in front of them, you know, 500 routes, we think they could get to, you know, maybe a thousand in a 1500 route opportunity. Uh, they got a large shareholder that founded the business, 17% owner, Maurice Gallagher, still the CEO. Um, great balance sheet. It just looks like they've got lots of growth opportunity in front of them. And it, at these margins, at the returns on capital that they've got, it's going to create a lot of earnings per share growth, a lot of dividend growth over time. So Interesting stuff. We, we'll absorb those ups and downs through the cycle in order to participate in the long-term story. All right. Well, a fascinating company. We're glad you brought it to our attention uh, with Allegiant uh, Air. Goes, goes just by Allegiant, but a fascinating story indeed. We appreciate your time. Brian McCauley uh, is with Hennessy Funds. Well, coming up with the drill down, we're going to have the drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot about Allegiant. We're going to look at those trailing 12-month EBIT margins. Uh, they are a sight to behold, um, and we'll tell you exactly where they've been and where they are right now when the drill down continues. But first... The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools will allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A.com. And if you tried listening to the Drill Down podcast on your smart speaker, that's right, you can turn to your smart speaker and say something like, yo, Alexa, play the Drill Down podcast and sit back and enjoy the dulcet tones of the Drill Down. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. We're back with the Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. We were talking about where Allegiant is in a, uh, earnings, or earnings before, you know, weird stuff, basically operating earnings, their margins. Um, on a trailing 12-month basis, still suffering from the COVID downturn, they got down to, you know, he was talking about a kind of a 20% goal of, of, of operating margins, EBIT margins. Well, uh, they are last on a 12 month basis. They got to nearly negative 30%, but, uh, in the most recent sort of 12 month trailing period, their, uh, their operating margins were negative 5%, negative 5.26%. There's your drill on bite for that, uh, that one number that means a whole lot for these guys. Um, that trailing 12-month thing. But we're, but I should compare it really. In the last quarter, they were at a 16% uh, EBIT margin. So things uh, getting better slowly over at Legion. Actually, 16.61 in the most recent quarter. So maybe coming back to that 20% goal. All right, you've been listening to the Drill Down Podcast. We appreciate your time. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Ben Wilson is our editor extraordinaire. And the Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network. 